The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. As we walk beside still waters, let's think about what it means to be a counter-culture change agent, and specifically salt. The Lord Jesus said in his teaching that we are the light of the world, we are the salt of the earth. And we know that salt has impact. It changes the um, surroundings uh, upon which it is cast. Uh, It prevents decay. Uh, It adds flavor. And we can go through a myriad of benefits that salt has. But in Matthew chapter 10... Uh, we look a little at uh, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he said concerning uh, his disciples and the fact, especially in, at about verse 16 of chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, he said to them, I send you as sheep in the midst, and that's the operative word, in the midst of wolves. Be therefore prudent as serpents, and guileless as the doves. So salt, people who are salty, disciples who are salty are relational. Now, let me clarify. It doesn't necessarily mean that the effect, when we think of salt, we may not think of ourselves as, or we may think of ourselves as having a beneficial effect. But remember, salt is being cast very often in an environment in which decay is beginning to set in. There's rottenness. There's death, if you will. And so when the Lord Jesus says, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves, what we're seeing here are disparate natures. Disparate natures. We're we're, uh, placed in the midst of carnivorous Uh, animals, if you will. Okay, so that means that what we are going to encounter may not necessarily be pleasant. However, there are uh, some needful traits, characteristics that become indispensable in this sort of environment. And so the disciple is characterized as serpents, cautious, Practical skills or an acumen, intelligence. You know, when you think of a serpent, a snake, you know, the only thing they have going for them are their fangs and their poison. Typically, uh, assuming they're poisonous or venomous snakes, 
But if not, they still have to be mindful of their environments and move in such a way that they're either not detectable or they don't create a disturbance. And yet they're able to move in their environments. But we're also characterized as doves, having no mixture. We're pure. We are free from guile. So there's a certain measure of wisdom and acumen in dealing with, interacting with people. And this is a skill that's so sadly lacking among Christians. We are very often doctrinally correct. But in terms of our interactions with people, we are at times belligerent or rough at the edges. And so we have to be mindful and attentive to what men are capable of, and therefore with wisdom and, if you will, circumspect character, mingle with people whose natures might be disparate from ours. And so there's the gentleness and the guilelessness of a dove, but the wisdom, the intelligence of a serpent being placed in the midst of what can be very challenging circumstances. And so the Lord Jesus says, well, firstly, we need to be aware. We need to be mindful and attentive to what men are capable of. And then he begins to tell his disciples exactly what men are capable of. Because he says, they'll hand you over for judgment. They'll hand you over for judgment. There's no allegiance to the things that you believe, no affinity towards you. And the end result is you will very well be betrayed. Your lot is that you will be brought before tribunals. And we have a perfect example of that in, in Acts chapter 6. And we see that uh, uh, Stephen was a man filled with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was working in him, both in the miraculous, but in the practical. But he also uh, exhibited the character, if you will, like an angel. He was guileless. But the net result of his guilelessness is that he lost his life. He lost his life. He was among wolves. And so the Lord Jesus begins to tell his disciples not only about their character and that they will be brought before uh, the Sanhedrims, the, the religious tribunals, but you're going to suffer. We are going to suffer. And it's a message that we do not hear a lot of from many that have pulpits, uh, that have a platform to instruct the people of God that uh, what is germane to the life of discipleship, the life of the devotee, is that there's, it will be part and parcel mixed with suffering. He, he talks about scourging in synagogues. The very places that were designed for divine worship become places where judgment and humiliation are exacted. Justice is tainted and injustice prevails. Justice is tainted and injustice prevails. He says, they're going to deliver you up. You shall be brought there. You will be led captive. Your destination will be before magistrates, courts of justice. He says, even kings, 
for example, and rulers for my sake. Your destination and my destination will be in a place where we are called upon to give an account of what we believe and why we live as we do. And it is because of our affinity and allegiance and connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be putting Christ in you on trial again. For the true devotee of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be putting Christ in you on trial again. We are counter-culture changers. We are salt. And what you're looking at is the effect of salt. Now he says you'll be brought before kings, rulers, and nations. Peter, in his first letter to the Christians that were scattered, dealt with the issue of suffering. Five short chapters. It's a fairly short book. But he declares to the Christians that were scattered throughout Asia, Asia Minor, that they are strangers and sojourners. He commanded them in the power of the Spirit to be holy. And I want to say this, you know, uh, uh, Christians struggle with what is my calling? And some will say, well, you know, I'm called to preach, I'm called to teach, and I'm called to be a Sunday school teacher or some specific uh, avenue of ministry. But Peter says in the first chapter about the 15th verse, but as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct, all of your lifestyle, not just specific areas of your lifestyle, not just certain days of the week, but every area of your life that you can examine, the stamp of holiness, the stamp of the presence of the Spirit of God must be clearly evident, right down to our pleasures. Oh, my friends, this is not an option. We are called people, but in our calling, part of that calling is holiness. And I know we have a, a wide variety of, of uh, pictures of what does a life of holiness look like. Oh, we are going to see what a life of holiness looks like. But here is what Peter says. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Christ lives in me. Holiness is not an option. It demands a reassessment of one's life, one's thinking, one's speech, one's behavior, and a clear contrasting or comparison to the commands, the demands of the Spirit of God in Holy Writ to compare and contrast my life with what is commanded and ask myself, how do I measure up? Do I miss the mark? Am I hitting the mark? Be holy for I am holy. And this is what he says. And if you invoke as father, 
If you and I are calling on God upon our knees and petitioning the majesty on high, he who is infinite, if we are calling on God as his children, he says, pass the time of your sojourn in reference. But even before he gets there, he says, if you invoke his father, him who without regard of persons. God is objectively righteous and holy, and he is not going to take your person or mine into account at the expense of his holiness. You and I are not exempt from a response from a holy God. And therefore, it behooves us to understand the mandate that is upon us. Oh, this is Vitally important. And for example, in in Matthew chapter 5, okay, uh, when the Lord Jesus, I'm going to go back and forth in in our conversation, but when the Lord Jesus was exhorting the listeners at the time of the the quote-unquote Sermon on the Mount, and he says uh, that you are the light of the world, and men don't uh, hide their light under a bushel, under a bed, but places it in the house where men could see. And then he says, let your light so shine among men that they might see your good works. As strangers and pilgrims, sojourners that Peter referenced, we're going to find that Peter uh, emphasizes and re-emphasizes the mandate for good works. What I do, what I say, how I live, points to the fact that I am light. I'm exhorted to evidence by my life. I am light in a dark world, in the cosmos. I am salt sprinkled among people, circumstances, places, uh, corporations, wherever. I am with people. I am among people in circumstances that are often Riddled with decay, riddled with pain, riddled with hurting people, riddled with lives that have become chaotic. And we are placed in that scenario to bring about change. But this change tends to rub people. It's counterculture. This is what salt does. We don't change a culture by standing with signs in our hands, crying out for the evils, not that that may or may not have its place. We change a culture by living a life of holiness, a life of light, a life of salt, in such a way, like John the Baptist, that the people, even though he was out in the wilderness, they came to him. He was in the Jordanian Valley, and we are told in the scriptures that the, the, the Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding places of the Jordan, the Jordanian Valley, came to him. He was counterculture. He was so counterculture that he dressed differently and ate differently. But what made him counterculture is his devotion to one cause, and that is to make straight the paths of the coming Messiah to put the people in readiness. But for him to change the culture, he needed to be ready for the Messiah himself. And so as little Christs, and that's what we are, 
in a culture filled with decay, we are little Christ. He says, be, this is Peter, be in subjection to the powers that be, to the, the uh, obey the ordinances, yield to it. Uh, hupotasso is the word. Obey, subject yourselves as little Christ. Now, people say, well, you know, there are a lot of things that's wrong with our culture. Well, remember, when the Lord Jesus came, Rome was the ruling power. And they exacted taxes. I mean, it was oppressive. But then when the people or the enemies of our Lord Jesus challenged him about giving taxes, and he asked them for a Roman coin, and he asked Whose image and superscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. He didn't challenge the culture, but look at the life of service and healing and raising the dead and cleansing the lepers. I mean, there's no life comparable to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he worked within the confines, the constraints of the culture, but as the light of the world, he impacted the culture. And so Peter could say the same thing, be in subjection, therefore, to every human institution. This is in First uh, Peter chapter 2 at about the 13th verse. Whether to the king is supreme or to the rulers as sent by him for vengeance on evildoers and praise to them that do well, because, here it is, so is the will of God. Oh, let's just pause there for a moment. Folks always are trying to say, oh, you know, I'm trying to find the will of God for my life. Well, here is the will of God. In chapter 1, the will of God is holiness. Holiness. Not so much what you do in the uh, avenue of service, but the quality of a life devoted to and a life that is separate from the prevailing decay of the cosmos. And so he says that by well-doing you put to silence the ignorance of senseless men. Now, this is vital. You see, what people are looking at is our lifestyle. We use that term a lot, my lifestyle. But they're listening to our speech and they're looking at our conduct. And Peter calls it well-doing. Doing well. Doing what is of benefit to others. What helps others, doing the things that profits others, doing the thing that, if you will, is beneficial to others, people that, 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 are, that we have been sprinkled among, become the beneficiaries of a life lived as a sweet aroma to please God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, in the pattern and example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us are calloused in our conduct and we're not mindful of the fact that we may not be helpful to others. We may not be profiting them. They may not be the beneficiaries of our good works. And so Peter says, it is by good works, doing things that are helpful, beneficial, profitable to others, it silences their Ignorance, agnosia, or agnosia, I should say, okay? The not knowing, the, if you will, their agnosticism. Uh, 
They don't know, but they're not sure. And because they don't know, they'll take the position of, I don't know. And they remain in an I don't know state of being and state of living. But he says, by our works, we muzzle their mouths. We render them speechless. They become silent as they look at us living out a life of light and salt. As we live our lives to help them and profit them and benefit them, they cannot respond because they've never seen a life of this. The problem is, many who are agnostics have never seen the, de- uh, the devotee of our Lord Jesus Christ living a light of life. Sometimes Christians can be thorny, difficult, challenging, and we forget our mandate of holiness and subjection to the powers that be. Let me just summarize this thought, and then we go on to some other thoughts. We are little Christs doing the will of God by doing works of benevolence to ignorant or agnostic men. And when we are examined in their tribunals, they will be silenced because they have only our good works to judge us by. Do you remember Daniel in Daniel chapter 6? Daniel was a man of similar makeup like many of us. And his enemies could find no fault or flaw. He wasn't perfect because remember, he came out of the captivity of, uh, uh, out of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar came. So, and, and we are told in, in the last chapter of Second Chronicles that uh, there was no remedy. There was no remedy for these people. God took them all out. Who he didn't slay by the sword, pestilence took. And who pestilence did not take, uh, they went in chains to Babylon. So Daniel was part of that mix. But when Daniel got to Babylon and he realized, and I believe he realized exactly why they were where they were, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. But that decision for holiness, for purity, permeated his life all the way through at least three kingdoms. And therefore, at almost to the end of his life, When his enemies sought to find some accusation against him, the only thing they could find is the fact that he was devoted to Jehovah. And so they concocted this scheme where no one would be able to pray except to the king and so forth. And they knew that they entrapped him. What to God it would be that way for many of us. That the only way that people could find fault with us is the fact that we are above reproach. But some of us are salty in the worst way, (laughs) not in the biblical way, (laughs) but we're just really prickly, touchy, sensitive, hard to get along with. And we have forgotten our mandate that our lives are to benefit, profit, and help others. And doing so, we are able to silence agnostics. They are muzzled because they have no idea what to say. And when we are brought as little Christs, being judged as little Jesuses, if you will, 
The only thing they could condemn us for is our benevolence towards men. We do works that bless men. Our words bring blessing in the face of cursing. Others are profited by us. And so we become little Christs doing the will of God by exemplary works of benevolence to those who are ignorant or agnostic. And when we are examined, when we are placed and have to give an account of ourselves, they are silenced because the only works that they attribute to us as evil are really good works. And then we go on, we talk about the, the character that is displayed in, in, in Second Peter, in First Peter, uh, chapter two, verse 19. This is when it really, this is where the rubber meets the road here. Because Peter says, "This is acceptable if one for conscience' sake towards God, endure griefs, suffering unjustly." Now you don't hear this. People are not preaching this. Okay? You are disadvantaged. And he says, this is acceptable if one for conscience sake towards God endure griefs, suffering unjustly. For what glory is it if sinning and being uh, uh, buffeted, if you will, that you bear it, but if doing good and suffering and you bear it, this is acceptable with God. This is grace exemplified. This is the character that demonstrates that the Spirit of God really is filling us. Because remember, our Lord Jesus, and he's going to, he's going to allude to this uh, further in his writing, but this is grace exemplified. This is proof of the indwelling Spirit in our lives. This is a display of godliness. This is a gift of grace. That's what he said. This is acceptable as the will of God. Suffering unjustly is the will of God. Because of the disciples' connection with and walk with God, they endure circumstances that cause grief. And I want to be very clear here. As we are endeavoring to walk beside still waters, we tolerate, as we are walking with God, we tolerate griefs unjustly by remaining under it. We allow it to be placed on our shoulders. We bear it patiently. We endure sorrow, pain, annoyances caused by people, afflictions. And Peter says it, suffering wrong, suffering unjustly. The injustice of affliction, the undeserved affliction that you and I often experience because of our devotion, obedience, and love for Christ. This is acceptable with God. The Christian life more often than not, is not one that is pregnant with blessing and wealth and health. <laughs> On the contrary, it is filled often with grief, suffering, wrongs, injustice. But twice Peter states that salt suffers this way. Twice. 
He says, this is acceptable for conscience sake towards God that the Christian endure griefs. You find it in verse 19, suffering unjustly. That is inescapable. For what glory is it? What good is it if we are disciplined, whether at work or otherwise, because of wrongdoings? There's no glory in that. But if because we have lived a life devoted to God and others have been benefited, have experienced uh, our benevolence because of our devotion and love for God and care for them as human beings, and they treat us wrongly, he says, this is acceptable with God. Twice, this is acceptable with God. God sanctions this. What is the this? The this is Unjust suffering in the face of doing good. Unjust suffering by working and laboring to benefit others. Unjust suffering by causing others to profit by our presence and industry. This is acceptable with God. This is salt in its truest state. This is counter-culture living. My friends, (laughs) we are purposing, endeavoring to walk with God beside still waters. That's our catchphrase for establishing time in his presence that our hearts, minds, and lives can be transformed by the presence and power of the Spirit of God. And Peter Peter drives this issue home in the power and leading of the Spirit to pen these words. And this is what he says in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, for to this you have been called. Now, those of you who are saying, well, I don't know what my calling is. Maybe I'm called to preach, teach, be a Sunday school teacher, or be a missionary, whatever. Oh, no, 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 no. That may be good. But here's what the Spirit of God says is every Christian's calling. For to this you have been called, for Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you a model, a template that you should follow in his steps. This is really clearly stated that a a six-year-old can understand it. Christ is my model. Christ is your model. This is our calling. We equate calling with an activity. God equates calling with our affinity and Christ-likeness. This is God's purpose for the Christian, Christ-likeness. Paul was called an apostle in Romans 1.1, but in all his writings, he referred to Christians to whom he wrote as saints, Holy ones. Peter in chapter one, verse uh, 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 chapter two in First Peter in his his, his uh, writing, he he exhorts to a holy pattern of living, and that pattern is the call of the Spirit of God to walk and live and pattern our lives to manifest by the presence of God in our lives. Christ-like.
holiness, holiness. This is the call of every Christian, holiness, Christ-likeness. And he says it clearly, for to this, this is the objective, this is the divine target, the bullseye, to this you have been called. In other words, you could be a teacher, preacher, missionary, whatever, but not living a holy life. You've missed your calling. <laughs> You've missed your calling. I've missed my calling. My calling is Christ-likeness. My calling is holiness. And so, he says, now look at it, concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, who, when reviled, verse 23, reviled not again. Do people insult you? Do we come back with smart remarks? Cutting remarks? You know, we reduce them. We rob others of their dignity by our conduct and our words. Is that Christ-likeness? Is that guilelessness? Is that the correct response to ill treatment? Because Peter says, this is acceptable if one, for conscience sake, towards God, endure grief, endure it, remain under it, suffering unjustly. If you can conclude, I don't deserve this. <laughs> Guess what? You're right in the will of God. I've been there. It is possible by the grace of God to endure it. And so the response to ill treatment, when reviled, the Lord Jesus did not revile again in his response. When suffering, he didn't counter with a threat. If you continue, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. He didn't do that. But look at what he did. He gave himself over into the hands of him who judges righteously. You see, a life of holiness, a life of walking with God, a life of living with God beside still waters necessitates implicit trust that God is mindful of your circumstances and you reserve yourself, hand yourself over into his righteous authority, trusting his ability to execute righteous judgment in his time. My dear friends, earth has no salt except you and me. The cosmos has no heaven-sent little Christs except you and me. There are no other entities in which Christ lives in us except you and me. There are no other models that God will use to manifest the life of the Lord Jesus except you and me. This is counter-culture living. This is counter-culture change, right down to the cutting edge. But this is not affected by words or a dress code or a religious affiliation. But Christ set apart in the heart as holy. In fact, <laughs> it's interesting Peter says in, in, in chapter 3, and, and, and this, is, this is where it, it really gets, uh, this, this is where the rubber meets the road, as the saying goes. 
This is where the wheel is touching the asphalt. He says, if you should suffer, in, in, in chapter 3 and verse 14, but if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are you. But don't be afraid of their fear, neither be troubled, but sanctify, that is, set apart as holy, the Lord, the Christ, in your heart, and be always prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. You see, what the, what the disciple does is they set apart in their heart. It's not where I go to worship that makes me holy. It's not certain words, phrases that I use that, that indicates to people that I'm a Christian. It is a life lived as a sweet aroma to please God. And in pleasing God, people are always the beneficiaries of my obedience. Ephesians 5 verse 1. We model, we walk the way our Lord Jesus Christ walked. And he says, as beloved children, we follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We set him apart in our hearts as holy. We become his shrine, his temple, his dwelling place. And therefore, there's a, a greater measure of sensitivity, a greater understanding of the purpose of our calling. The stamp of holiness, the mandate of holiness is on my life and yours. This is not optional. It is not a matter of being blessed. It is a matter of going into a culture that is darkened, fallen, sin-stained, pregnant with evil, and walking as light, being salt, sprinkled among people, living a life where they see and receive benefit, and they are silenced because they treat us poorly, and we don't respond in kind. Why? Because our model, our example, our template from which we draw Wisdom and grace is our Lord Jesus Christ. When reviled, reviled not again. When suffering, he never threatened. But he handed himself over to God who judges righteously. And that is all we must do. So I say this. Christ in me is the salt of the earth. He began his change when he stepped foot on this earth from heaven. And he says, I send you a sheep among wolves. Our Lord Jesus in Isaiah 53, he became dumb as a sheep before her sharers as they, as they cut the wool from his body. As they cut the wool from the body of a sheep and the sheep remains silent. So our Lord Jesus was humiliated before men and magistrates, Pontius Pilate. He never opened his mouth. And now he's sending us as sheep. And he promises his disciples in, in, in Matthew 9, 19, that when they are before the magistrates, don't be concerned about what you will say. He will put his words in their mouths and also in ours. He tells them in, in later on in the chapter, verses 21 and 22, that they will be hated on account of his name. The angst, the pressure, the ill treatment that we receive is not because we are bad people, 
but we have aligned and associated and believed upon the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the world recognizes if we are living a separated life, a life of holiness like John the Baptist, <laughs> they recognize that we are different. We are counter to the cultural norms. You shall be hated on account of my name. It is enough, he says, that the disciple should become as his teacher. Verse 25, chapter 9, Matthew's Gospel. We are associated with him from God's perspective. And the thing about salt is it cannot be neutralized. He told them, be not afraid, as they may, they may kill the body. Now, of course, we live in a very blessed country. We, you know, you know, we don't experience persecution like some of our brethren in other parts of the world. But that time might come. But he says, don't be afraid if they kill the body. They cannot touch your soul. And remember, the Lord Jesus said of himself, the, the Son of Man, that's what he often called himself to his disciples, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. Now he's telling them, don't be afraid if they kill you. But he said of himself that he will rise the third day. You find that in Matthew 17, uh, 22nd and 23rd verse. He'll rise again. He'll rise again. And there is divine reciprocation, as above, so below. He says, everyone confessing me before men, I will also confess him before my Father. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in the heavens. Oh, my friends, this is so important, so vital. You want to make change in your culture? Do you want to make a difference? It's not so much that we are calling out the wrongs in our society, and when we have opportunity, yes, we should be vocal about it. But what people see is the way we live, the way we govern ourselves, our conduct, our words, our pleasures. They look at our lives and see a distinction, light. There is clarity that there is a change in our lives that they cannot explain. And the thing, the watchword, the clear evidence that there's a change is that they are helped by us. They are benefited by us. They are profited by us. Whether within the home, within a family or a marriage, or in the school, among our friends, or in a corporate setting, in the work world, at the supermarket, wherever God has sprinkled us, I ask you this. Do men benefit are they profited? Are they helped by your and my love and loving allegiance and living out of our lives before God our Father as a sweet aroma? Do I want my life to be so pleasing to God that it, it's, it's uh, compared to incense burning a sweet aroma? Christ in me is the salt of the earth. And so as we quiet our hearts again to contemplate, if perhaps I have experienced injustice because of my association with, affinity towards the Lord Jesus Christ, my love for him, 
Peter says, count yourselves blessed and in the will of God if you suffer for righteousness' sake. Oh, may God give us the grace to never complain, but that we beseech him as we seek to walk with him, we, we plead with him to abundantly give us grace to love and bless and give of ourselves for the benefit of others, even though they may treat us unkindly. But in doing so, they see a life and a lifestyle that is so counterculture that they cannot but be impacted. May God so fill our hearts and minds with this spirit that we become counterculture change agents. Little Christ, Christ in me, the salt of the earth. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.